Good morning. Good morning. i got to figure out how to make this machine work real quick. There it goes. Hey, how we doing? All right. Well, my name is Ernie. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church, where we want to be ordinary people transformed by the mercy of God to reach our campus, city, and world. And I, I can't be, I'm really excited to be here this Sunday, but I can't tell you how excited I'm going to be on November 14th when we have baptisms. All right. Because that's why we came here, that's why we planted this church, is we didn't wanna be just a church where Christians hung out and just died on the vine and were people that really weren't transformed, but we wanna see transformation happen around us. We wanna see dead people come alive and we're gonna get to celebrate that. And I loved how Hazel said that, no one's gonna come, no one's gonna be a dead person coming alive when they go in the water. It's just a picture of what's happened in their life. It's an opportunity to celebrate and proclaim and be excited about what God has done and join in as a family to be like, this is a moment where we have a new brother, we have a new sister, it's exciting to be here. So, hey, we're glad you're here, and we're gonna open up straight into Ephesians 4, no intro this morning, all right? Uh, just, we're gonna, start get, we're gonna get straight into the word. Ephesians 4, if you have a Bible, it looks like mine, if you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you, take it. It's on page four, 568, 568, if you, don't, if you have one of these Bibles, you can just open straight up to that page. Um, and if you don't have it, if you don't have one, great, take it. This is our gift to you. Uh, but in chapter four, verse one, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. And when you look at that, if this is your first time here, you feel like you're kind of stepping into a conversation that's in the middle of the conversation. Because you don't ever start a conversation with, therefore, you're like, well, what came before that? In fact, it, that's exactly what's happening in Ephesians 4. The first three chapters, he's summing up. He says, because of all of these things that have happened in chapters one through three, there are some implications that should happen in your life. And if you haven't joined with us, I wanna share with you a little bit about that. See, if you get into Ephesians 1, you see the first half of it is how God himself, through the Trinity, accomplished salvation for all of humanity, the work that he's done. And then Paul prays a prayer that says, hey, I want you to begin to grasp this, to understand it. And then in chapter two, he start, Paul talks about how God has transformed our vertical relationship with him by faith through grace, by grace through faith. Man, I can't talk this morning, y'all. All right, y'all gonna help me out. I gotta laugh at some of my bad jokes. All right, there we go. <laughs> yeah, thanks, brother. All right, he's actually my brother. So, uh, but we see how God has transformed us, our vertical relationship to him by grace through faith. That faith was the, the vehicle that got us into relationship. But not only that, how God reconciled us to one another. That you look at the second half of chapter two and the first part of chapter three, and he talks about not only did he reconcile us to himself, but he reconciled us to one another. In fact, Paul uses the most extreme version of that. He says the Jews and the Gentiles, people that hated one another, people that want nothing to do with one another. God brought them together in one person that they would be in relationship. And then Paul prays this prayer that we talked about last week where he says, man, I want you to understand the heights, the depths, the widths of God's love and transformation in your life. And so because of all of these things, Paul says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling of which you've been called. All right, and we're gonna talk about that for the next three chapters. Not this morning, all right? We're gonna be here just for a few minutes, not all day, but we're gonna be talking about just bits and pieces of it over the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, about how we're meant to walk worthy of what God has called us to be. Now, here's the thing I wanna bring us to. When you hear chapter one through three, 
And if you've been with us and you've read through it and you see all the amazing things that God has done, how he's completely transformed us from the inside, I'm willing to bet there are some of us that have a huge disconnect in our lives from what we read about God's transformation to what we experience. That there are some of us that go, okay, I read this, I see this, and maybe when I read the Bible, it's just like words that are dead on the page, they're not alive in my heart. That sometimes you're like, I see what God has done. I read and hear the, the, the power of the gospel, but I'm still doing this thing in my life I can't get rid of. There's still this thing that has a hold of me. Man, if that's you, because I've been there, there's so many times that I'll read the word of God and it'll be like reading words of the page. It will not have the transformational power that it's meant to have. It doesn't hit me here, it only hits me here. See, if that's you, you're in the right place. Because for the next couple of weeks, as we look through the book of Ephesians, the last half of it, what, what the word of God is gonna tell us is this, is that what happened on the inside must happen on the outside. That what God did so transformationally on that cross that changed you from a dead person to a live person from a person that was an enemy of God to a person that is a son or a daughter of the king must be lived out in your life. See, I believe many of us don't experience the transformation of God in our life because we don't live like sons and daughters of the king. We still live like enemies of the king, but we know in our heads we're not anymore. We still hold on to titles, sinner, Thief, liar, cheater. Not good enough. We don't let the gospel indwell us to a point that we live it out in our life. That we live differently. See, because when Paul says right here, he goes, walk worthy. He's not saying we should have a certain kind of walk. It's a metaphor for how we're meant to live, that our life is meant to live differently. When he says walk worthy, it's not, okay, here it is. Chapter one through three is what God did. Now chapter four through six is how you gotta make up for it. But it's Paul saying, no, walk worthy of the calling of which you have been called. That God has made you different. You were one way and now you're another. And now you have to learn to live into this new reality. You don't become that because, because you choose to or by what you've done, but it's by what Christ has done and transformed you and now you're a new creation and now you must walk different. You are a different human being now than you were before you followed Jesus. Now it's time for you to live up to the calling of which you have been called. If you saw a prince you know, a guy that's next in line to be a king of a kingdom. And he was the kind of guy that he didn't take his responsibilities seriously. He didn't do any of the things that he was meant to do. In fact, he just spent his time drinking, partying, and using those who were meant to lead. You would say he was an unworthy leader. Why? Because he's not living into who he was born to be. And guys, Paul is urging us 
to live into who we're meant to be, not so that you would be a responsible person, or not so he can use you, but so that you would experience the joy, the peace, the purpose, the heights, the depths, the width, the love of Christ that he talked about just a few verses earlier. Because when we don't live in the line with design of who we're meant to be, we don't experience the goodness that God has for us. For many of us, we live like chickens when we're eagles. You realize that, right? Y'all, we had chickens at my house for like two years. I went to kill them after day two. They're dirty, they're gross, they're dumb. I was like, oh my word. In fact, one of my favorite parts about owning chickens is the eagle almost killed them. It was awesome. Because eagles are awesome, chickens are dumb. But many of us guys, look, let me, you need to understand this, that God isn't calling you to be something you aren't. You aren't. He's calling you to live into who you're meant to be. And so he says, live worthy of the calling of which you've been called. And then he goes right into chapter, uh, verse two, he says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What? Well, keep reading. Keep reading all the way to six. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so Paul starts out in verse one. He says, hey, you need to walk worthy. What's the first thing he starts talking about? He starts talking about the unity of the body. The first thing Paul talks about, he says, this is what it looks like to walk worthy. He says, the unity of the body that we need to walk is one person. And, and then in, in, the, in verses two through six, he gives us the recipe for unity, all right? Any of y'all like to cook in here? I love to cook. I only love to cook for more than five people, all right? My wife will understand that joke because there's five people in our family, all right? I love cooking big, big meals. Like, I love putting something on the smoker. I love cooking like, okay, we're gonna feed 40 people. I don't know what that's inside of me that likes that, but maybe, I don't know what it is, but I just love doing that. But I remember a story my friend Critter told me about, he had to feed like thousands of people that he was working at a church and they're saying, hey, we're gonna have a celebration. You and these like five guys are in charge of cooking all the pulled pork, in which he had never cooked pulled pork in his life. But he had thought, like he had talked as if he did. And so they gave him this responsibility and there was a guy that knew how to, he's like, he's gonna give you the recipe. And so he, they get all, he's got 50 pulled, like pork shoulders, all right? He's got almost like hundreds of pounds of pork. And now he, he has this, all the ingredients and he starts to rub. And what he does, he gets an assembly line and he just gets everybody to rub all the ingredients all over it. And he gets it in, he puts it in the, in the, in the, uh, the smoker, this humongous smoker. And then he realizes there's nothing left. All the ingredients is gone. And he's like, oh my goodness, we just poured hundreds of pounds of salt onto this pork, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. And so he looks at the guys, he goes, guys, I made a terrible mistake. We need to take all of these porks out of here and we need to just scrape all this stuff on because we weren't meant to put all of it on there. And by the end of it, he said, he was like, Ernie, it filled up an entire like industrial sink of like salt and mustard. He's like, it would have been awful. And, and because he had done that, the next day, don't worry, everything would fine. People were like, that was the best pulled pork ever. You know, maybe they were just church people lying to him. But <laughs> it'd be nice. 
But that's what he thought, but that's what they told him. But my point is this, if you get the, the ingredients wrong on something, it's gonna taste really bad. It's gonna taste really nasty. And in order for us to walk worthy, we need to have the right ingredients. We need to know what it takes for unity. And Paul gives us three things in these couple of verses. The first one, he says, there needs to be a certain kind of character amongst the body. And he lists out a couple of those characteristics. The first one he says is humility. He says humility. Humility is a person's quality of being free from arrogance and pride. It's the ability. Humility is not, by the way, guys, it's not being a rug. It's not letting somebody walk all over you. It's not like, I don't have any opinions, whatever you want. It's, it's not belittling yourself. That's false humility that many of us get trapped into. But what humility is, is thinking about yourself less. And that's a really hard thing to do because I love to think about myself. I love to wonder how I'm coming off. What do I look like? Does my hair look good? Does this happen? Like, you know, the people think this about me. How does that make me feel? And what humility is, is thinking about ourselves less. In fact, it's the idea of putting ourselves in right perspective that we're not the center of the universe. Like college students, if you fail your finals, the world will not stop. The world will not begin to cry, all right? They're not gonna sing Kumbaya and sing a song, all right? Like, it's just not gonna happen. They're not, no one's gonna care but you and your family. Humility, <laughs> maybe not your family. <laughs> we'll pray for you after the service, all right? We'll care, all right. But humility is removing pride and arrogance because those things are the opposite of humility. See, when we lead in pride and humility, when we lead in pride and arrogance, we end up making destructive bad decisions. When we live a life that's, that's about us and our success and bolstering ourselves up, it ends up being extremely destructive. In fact, we see this all over culture. You know, one of our, one of, I'm an LSU fan, big LSU fan. It's, yeah, it's really hard right now to be an LSU fan because we're really bad. But two years ago, we had the best season that's ever been had by any football team. And it came because... <laughs> It came because we had a coach that had the humility at that time to raise up other leaders around him to do their jobs really well. And now it's fallen apart because he's done the exact opposite. Pride and arrogance has a way of destroying you. It has a way of destroying community. You ever been in a friendship with people? Like you have a group of friends, but this one person's always about themselves? How does that deal with your friendship? Some of you are giggling right now because you're thinking of people, all right? And if you're not giggling, maybe they're thinking of you, all right? Think about yourself less. That's a joke. <laughs> but humility removes pride and arrogance, and it removes it by choosing to think of others instead of ourselves. And we can think of others more than we do. Very few of us in this room are just always thinking of others. It's an attitude that says, hey, God, you're first. It's an attitude that sees us in right perspective, and we're not the first ones to go. In fact, Jesus modeled humility for us, and Paul wrote about it in Philippians 2, and this is what he said. Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider himself 
equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Guys, if you're gonna have radical transformational community, if unity is actually going to exist in this church, there's gonna be moments that we're gonna have to be humble to one another. In fact, we're gonna have to be laced to it. If I have to desire your good before I desire mine. And then that love is expressed. But he doesn't just say humility, he says gentleness. And gentleness is one that's often misunderstood. We think about it as weakness, but really what gentleness is, is strength under control. Christ was described as gentle. You'd be wrong to describe him as weak. He had all the power. He could have called forth legions of angels, but he had restraint. Gentleness, guys, is about controlling your own power and passions with love and compassion instead of insecurity and compulsion. See, when I'm not gentle, it's because I'm being insecure. It's because I'm being compulsive. Let me give you a picture of that, okay? I got uh, a two-year-old little girl that we call like a tyrant. Her name's Gracie, all right? We named her Gracie because we thought she'd be grace on our life. We didn't know that was so that we would, we would need more grace in order to raise her, all right? But she is the most motherly child we have. She is loving of others uh, to a point that it becomes ferocious at times. <laughs> like, we have this dog. My brother lives with us right now, and he have this dog, and she loves dogs. Like, if, if you have a dog and you bring her on her, she starts saying, my puppy. And she's, like, looking at like, my puppy. It's mine now. It's my puppy. But what she'll begin to do as she pets it is then she'll begin to claw it and then squeeze it and then begin to strangle it, all right? This is describing some of y'all's relationships right now, okay? Um, but that's what she will begin to do immediately is just squeeze it because she's compulsive. She's immature. Guys, gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness is understanding the power that you have and having the self-control to restrain it for the benefit of those around us. Some of us love to say like, well, I just wanna be truthful. I was like, well, you can be truthful in gentleness as well. A community that is harsh to one another and lacks gentleness is a cold place to be. And Paul's saying, listen to me, if you're gonna live up to the calling of which you've been called, you need to understand what it means to be gentle. It's not only gentle, but patient. This is my least favorite one, because I'm not patient. But the kind of word that's being used in the Greek for patient here, it means like a person enduring of grief. Like it could literally be translated as long suffering. Like a state, it's a person that has a state of emotional calm in the face of, of provocatoring in front of them our misfortune. Someone who can deal with hardship around them without complaining or being irritated by it. This word for patient is often used for how God dealt with his people and dealt with us as we rebelled against him. 
that he was long-suffering and endured our rebellion with hopes of us returning to him. Patience is key to unity. Why? Because people are just as broken as you are. And if we're going to have a community that's unified to one another, patience is going to be a necessary ingredient. It has to be there. And by the way, Paul says all patience, all humility, all gentleness. And when he says all there, he's not talking about all that you have, but all that God can give you. Because God has it all. And here's the thing, you can't do it on your own. In order to be a patient, gentle, uh, patient, gentle, what's the other word? Goodness, humble person. You're gonna need the power of the Spirit. You're gonna have to trust God. You're gonna have to lean into what he provides, not what you have. That's the only way we're gonna walk worthy. It's the only way we're gonna stay unified with one another is by the power that God supplies in us through the Holy Spirit that directs us and points us and teaches us how to love one another and how to walk in relationship. So ingredient number one are these characteristics. Patience, humility, and gentleness. But when that doesn't happen, that's why the next two ingredients are really important. He says we need to bear with one another in love. Why? Because we're not always full of those three ingredients. The phrase to bear with means to take up, to endure It's often as well used with God when he talks about how he dealt with his people, that he was patient with them, that he endured their difficulty. But the kind of way that we bear one another's burdens, it's driven by something different. It's not driven by duty, but by the love of Christ. See, because if it's driven by anything else, if it's driven by duty that I'm gonna deal with you and your stuff and you're gonna deal with me and my stuff, that's gonna get old really quick because neither of us are getting paid enough to do that. Neither of us are getting enough benefits to do that. At some point, it's gonna wear thin. But when love drives, we can bear a lot. Trust me, guys that have young kids in the room, y'all know all about that, right? When the baby doesn't go to sleep at two or three, you're not, you're not, you're not, rocking that child to sleep because it's your duty as a parent. You're doing it because you love. What's fueling is the love that you have for them. So if we're gonna be a community that's unified, we need to learn what it is to bear one another's burdens, to bear one another in love, and be eager, number three, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, meaning never give up. The word eager means to be zealous, to make every effort. It carries this idea at all costs for everything. You must do this. You have to. And he says to bear up what? He says to, to eager to maintain what? The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In the Bible, it calls the bond of peace, like this idea of the bond of peace is a phrase that refers to the kind of connectedness 
like a defensive structure that fastens garments to one, to one another. It's like the love that a child has for its parent. To guard it at that level. Guys, I love my kids. And the bond that I have with my children is never gonna change. And what Paul is telling us here is that we need to guard the unity that we have in the spirit. The thing that brings us together is that we are all sons and daughters of the king. And that is something special that must be guarded and must be cared for and must be treated as it is and not something less. That we must have all eagerness to bring forth to one another, to bring about unity in our lives. Guys, let me ask you a question. What is the thing that, that drives you to unity, to love one another? What is the thing that draws you near to one another? Is it the work that God has done in your life or is it something else? Because if it's not the work of God, then it's gonna fall flat. So Paul gives us the recipe for unity, then he gives us the foundation of it. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called and one hope that belongs to your call, and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Lots of alls in there, right? He's saying the foundation of your unity is that God is one and you're meant to be one. That you are meant to live in design of your creator. There is one body referring to the universal church. When he says there's one body, he means he's referring to the universal church. That the church is the body of believers from all background, places, and times. And in this aspect, remember, he's talking about people that are, that are Gentiles and Jews, completely separate to one another. They don't even wanna be in the same building. But Paul's like, no, you must be one. That's what Mercy Hill Church must be. A place where people that would never be in the same room worship one God in the same room. Now, let me say something really quickly about this because you're like, Ernie, there's a lot of churches in, in Cincinnati. Why isn't there just one church? It's because unity is not uniformity. There's a difference between unity. I meet with a lot of pastors from this church, and guys, I'm gonna tell you this. Uh, Cincinnati has some of the most healthy church culture I've been around. That when we told them we were gonna plant Mercy Hill, every single church bumped into us and said, great, we need a church like Mercy Hill in Cincinnati. The things that you do will be different than the things that we do, and we're really excited about it. You have churches in Cincinnati that are unified under the kingdom of God, not the castle of whatever the name of their church is. That they wanna see people transformed by the mercy of God, people move from death to life. But they know that their church isn't the only answer, that God loves to use lots of churches with lots of different flavors to reach lots of different people. And so he's appointed us to be a part of that. But we can't forget that there is more the body of Christ is not just Mercy Hill. It's not just the SALT network. That God is using churches all over the world and that we are meant to have, and what oneness looks like with them is that we have the same mission. It's like people, it's like if an army, okay, I know I'm gonna use the analogy, it's gonna lose half the room because it's about the army, all right? All right, and the girl's like, I don't understand. Look at the guy next to you, maybe he'll help you out, all right? It's like this. It's like when the, the allies invaded 
uh, France on 1944, July 6, June 6, to attack the Germans. They were all part of different branches of the military. And they all had different visions, different missions, different things that they had to tackle, but they, had, they all had the same goal, to destroy the enemy. That's how the churches are meant to work in Cincinnati. That God has uniquely raised up leaders and given them different visions and different directions and different things to attack, but with the same goal of raising up the kingdom of God. He says, we're one God, one spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit that unifies us and that we have the same hope. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, you belong to your call. One God, one spirit, one call, one, 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 one baptism, one faith. You get what Paul is saying over and over again. That the vision is not an option. Because it's not an option for God's church, it's not an option for God, and it's not an option for God's people. So when we feel the desire to split, when we feel the desire to run, and I understand, guys, it's easier to run. It's hard to have humility. It's hard to have gentleness when others aren't being gentle. It's hard to be patient when it feels like time's running out. It's hard. But if we're gonna be God's people, if we're gonna be unified, in the face of that, we have to do the same thing that God has done himself. Is that he hasn't called us to be separated people, but to be one people together. And he's placed his spirit within us, and he says, reflect who I am to the world. And this is who I am. I'm one God. There's one baptism. There's one church. There's one spirit. Be one. What Paul is saying is this, is that when we allow division to come within us, it's not in step with who we are. It's not in step with who God is. So here's my challenge. What does your walk need to look like in order to preserve unity with the people around you? And where have you misstepped? Where does unity need to be brought back in to your life and your walk? And as you think about the steps of that, I need to encourage you to do this. The baseline, the center place where unification needs to happen is in line with Scripture. So the good place to start looking at where did I step out is like where did I step out of line with what Scripture says I am and who I'm meant to be. We need to walk as one, even though we're many. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for an opportunity to look at your word, to reflect on it. God, I ask as a
as we sit here and digest chapter four, verses one through six, that we would have a deep understanding of what it means to be one. God, there are so many areas in my life where I'm divided, and I need to repent of that. God, I just pray that our church would not be a church that's cliquish. It would not be a church that's broken up into different factions, different places. Uh, Lord, we would be a church that loves you, that loves one another. God, your word says they will know we will, they will know that we are your disciples by the way that we love one another. And so, Lord, cultivate patience in us. In us. Cultivate gentleness within us. Cultivate humility within us. Let us be a reflection of verses four through six. Not a distorting picture of that. You are not divided. Amen.